listeners, welcome to Name Drop San Diego, where we help you get to know interesting locals. On this episode, I'm pretty sure this is the youngest guest we've had yet. You're about to hear from Zachary Patterson, the first ever student board member for the San Diego Unified School District. There's so much going on with virtual learning and changes to schooling during the pandemic. We thought it would be a great time to hear from a student. Zachary is a 17-year-old junior at University City High School. In addition to being elected by his peers to serve in the position, he also pushed for the position to be established in the first place. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So he works with a student advisory board and also a coalition of student board members across the state of California. He has a lot to say about educational issues right now, so let's jump right in. Here's our conversation with Zachary Patterson. So you're the first ever student board member for the San Diego Unified School District uh, board. How did you, how did that position come about? Yeah, definitely. So I started working on this project, as I call it, in seventh grade, kind of recognizing a really strong disconnect between students and those making decisions on behalf of students. I sought out a way to reconcile them in a way that we could have proper representation. While I didn't know it then, it would lead me on a three-year campaign, three-year crusade to some extent, that ended with our district's first ever student advisory board and a student actually getting to serve on the Board of Education. And I'm honored to have won that first election in order to serve in that role. I have to say that's kind of amazing to be even aware of that stuff in seventh grade. So like, how did you start paying attention to it and how did you notice that disconnect? Yeah, definitely. So I asked that question to myself sometimes. (laughs) Uh, how How did I know about it? So I mean, I've just, I've loved politics and government since I was a little kid. I was the kid where in second grade, when we first learned about the Supreme Court, I was like, I want to be a Supreme Court justice. And you know, it's most people, they want to be a firefighter. They want to be something along those lines, more exciting. And it's like, oh, he wants to be a Supreme Court justice, really? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I've had an interest in government for a long time. And I think as I've developed my passion for social justice, and my passion for being a community change maker and being an advocate for progress in our society, I think I've learned more that my calling has been making a connection with our community and increasing the representation of student voice. And I've found so much joy in doing that. And then beyond that, it's just been working with students and hearing these issues and then witnessing them myself and asking, how can we do better? So speaking of social justice and being the student voice, what are some of the things that you see, particularly, um, I guess, high school maybe would be where you are most engaged, but what are some of the big issues right now that um, you see really uh, driving those young people? Yeah, definitely. So on a nationwide issue, I think we've seen uh, gun violence prevention from our 2018 situation where we had that shooting at Stoneman Douglas. We are seeing climate becoming a massive priority for our youth group led by Greta Thunberg and climate activists all across the United States and our world. And then I think racial justice and seeing in light of the death of George Floyd, how we've seen kind of a cultural awakening and people being aware that systemic racism still completely exists and Barack Obama's presidency didn't end that. It's something that's began with the founding of our nation and has continued all the way up till today. I would say those are the, I would say those are the three largest issues that I see advocacy for and that I've definitely worked on myself as well. 
Um, do you do you feel heard? I mean, through the student advisory board and through your position, you know, you mentioned the disconnect was one of the reasons you were starting this. Uh, do you see a difference being made by you speaking up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's tough, no question. So, what I have is what's called a preferential vote, and what that means is my vote is written down and spoken publicly, but it doesn't affect the formal outcome of the how the of how the vote is cast and what that means is that my influence has to be in my voice and in my ability to convince other board members of my ideas because in the end my dissent vote doesn't mean anything besides being besides not looking too good for the district itself so i find that i can be most effective when i work to successfully articulate myself and to really get my opinions out there it's definitely a mixed bag Sometimes I feel more successful than others. It's, as I said, it is pretty difficult. And just recognizing the fact that change takes a really long time to come about. And as painful as it is, one of the things I learned in my US history class right now, which I think is kind of ironic, is that every social movement in history, no matter how wrong the current situation, has just taken a long period of time and many, many people over time working to change the outcome. And I like to think of myself as kind of beginning that movement in San Diego Unified. And while I'm gonna do everything I can to expand my rights as a student board member and to get more diverse and accurate representation of students for the decisions made by our school district, it's not perfect, but I'm glad where we are. So you also pushed for the student advisory board. Um, speaking of like hearing, having your voice be heard, what are some of the things that you all um, policy-wise or just sort of vocalizing, like what are some examples of the things that have come up and that you all have pushed for? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things I'm most excited about is our talking about student teacher feedback surveys, which is a really big one for schools. So we all have experience of being in uh, elementary, middle, and high school and being like, oh, that teacher's just so bad, so frustrating. And what we've been trying to get down to is in, uh, in an objective manner, how can we capture that frustration and how can we use that to recognize what could be better? And what we're kind of working towards right now is creating a system where we can accurately get that student voice. I think that's a big, that's a big controversial one, just because we do have to talk about that balance. There's the worry from the teacher, hey, if the student doesn't like me, am I going to get fired? And it's kind of this balance that the student advisory board and I have been trying to push towards to get some way that students can be represented, while also, on the other hand, being able to give that the teachers the autonomy to teach the way they are. I'm happy to see how we're progressing. This is just one issue. Another one we talk about a lot is mental health days, and that's one that I'm pretty excited about. We're working to change our district absence code right now to allow for students to have an excused absence for mental health. And this has happened in Oregon and Utah already. It hasn't happened in the state of California. And I think it's going to happen later this year. And we'd be the first school district in the nation to see it, or the first school district in the state of California to see that change. And it'd be a pretty big deal allowing students to be able to take time off to recover, to be able to recognize I am stressed and I need to take time for myself and that's okay. And I think these are just two really good examples of solid issues that we as students can work on and keep in mind in the larger continuity of issues, maybe these aren't the ones that are the most stylish at times, but I think they really get down to some of the issues we face as students 
And it's an example of things that we are directly seeing that are having an impact on our students every single day. That's really interesting what you said about grading the teachers, essentially. You know, like it's something we see at the college level, but not necessarily at lower levels. Although I I think it should be a thing. Uh, So like if that were you know, to be implemented at the district level, like what would be the outcome if there were, you know, if a whole class or a whole whole grade <laughs> level disliked a teacher, uh, would that be actionable? Like, what are you guys thinking? Yeah, so where we are, I don't imagine, unfortunately, I don't think I'm in a place to where it could be actionable necessarily. And just recognizing my influence and where I am right now, I think it would kind of have to be, we would, it would have to definitely be a compromise to some extent. I think that what we would get to is when teachers have an evaluation, one of the boxes that they would check is that they're surveying their students and getting better information. And I think what we would move to is trying to, at least in the first stages, the way for me to be most successful in implementing something would probably be specific questions. So what do we think, what what are the traits of a good teacher? Does the student know where to locate the absence work, the absent work in the class? Does the student know how to ask a question? Do they feel that they're learning this, maybe not just visually, but also maybe audio? Maybe can they feel it when it's in class normally? Are you using the different senses to learn better? Kind of just emphasizing different ways of learning and then basic things, once again, can the student collect, does the student know where to turn in their late work or if they're absent, what do they do? These basic procedures are really critical to a successful classroom. And I think in the beginning, what we would see is more specific questions like this. And then my hope is in the future, we could really develop towards that college level as you were just talking about, where we have students that are actually directly surveying their teachers and it has an impact. And I think we'll get there, it'll just take some time. So on the subject of the student uh, advisory group, uh, the board, the student advisory board, are the needs, have you noticed that, well, first of all, do you have um, representatives of many different schools? How does, how many would you say? Yeah, definitely. So we have 23 members on our student advisory board this year. And how it works is San Diego Unified is split up into what we call geographic subdistricts, And there are five of them. And those five are represented by each member on the board of education. So what we do in order to get an accurate representation, I keep using that word, and that's the emphasis on our district is so diverse and it's not representative if it's all one race specifically if it's all one religion creed so we really emphasize that idea of diversity by making sure that we take students from all the different geographic subdistricts and grade levels so i think we do get a a really solid perspective on what student voice needs and what we what we want to hear from students and i also think that it, that part is a work in progress I'm currently working on an initiative to eliminate barriers for students to participate in those different groups. Currently, we have a 2.0 rule where you have to have a 2.0 in GPA in order to be in some of these activities. And I don't think that's conducive of a school district where we're getting the students, where we're hearing from the students that need the most help. So it's kind of this argument that we're trying to push on right now. If we can eliminate that requirement, maybe we can hear from the students that need our help the most and we can pull them forward together. Yeah, so on that point, do you find that the schools uh, and the representatives who speak for them, are there very, really a variety of needs and different issues from school to school? Or do you feel like there's some pretty common uh, ground among all of you? Yeah, so definitely there's there's both. There are definitely a variety of concerns. I think in our district, there's no secret that we do have uh, a divide. We call it north of the eight and south of the eight, unfortunately. And just based off of how San Diego 
was settled many, many years ago. We've had these communities that have been, I'm not sure if this is a word, but gentrificated, I believe. And what that has caused is our, our racially, we're very segregated in San Diego. And obviously when we push the idea of having students go to their community school, which is more convenient, better for the environment, less emissions, but on the other hand, also that keeps us more segregated then. And what that means is recognizing that reality, you're going to have socioeconomic differences. And that really does come up when we talk about this north of the eight, south of the eight, and how my students do have different needs. I think some of the most similar needs come in the larger issues that I talked about earlier. One of the big ones for racial justice right now, I have African-American students that serve on my student advisory board that talk about some issues that they've seen with discrimination, uh, with teacher discrimination that they've had towards them. And that was a north of the eight, south of the eight thing for both. But definitely talking about distribution of resources, that's definitely a variation. And while I do see that there are resources given to both sides, I think how effectively they're being used can uh, be up to debate sometimes. And that's a big discussion to kind of have. So two totally different perspectives and it really provides for a, a difficult, well, not a difficult, but a, a lively conversation on how to move forward. Uh, what are some of the issues where like students and faculty or others on the board generally disagree with? Because it sounds like there's a lot of agreement there. It sounds like you're heard and changes are made. But is there like any issue that there's just like there's some friction or you're not able to push it forward in the way that you'd like to see quite yet? Yeah, definitely. So I think that once again, we agree on a lot of things. And I'm pretty lucky to be on a board of education where we have such advocates of student voice. But with that said, as I said, progress is slow. And I do think that oftentimes what we put out on the dais when we get there can be worked and toned down to some extent. So I often come with, uh, I often come with an argument that's much more extreme than what finally gets there. So as you said, for student teacher feedback surveys, I would love to see it that students can directly survey their teachers giving their honest opinion and that did have an outcome on what you would see in the education system but we're kind of, we, we go back and forth and we kind of settle in the middle. And I hope that we'll move forward, but that's a good example of where I'm a little bit more progressive in that sense than the rest of the board is ready to move forward on. Talking about other issues, I think talking about our racial justice and equity policies that we're talking about right now, just this past week, the Board of Education announced a giant switch to focusing on grading that has to do with your mastery-based learning rather than uh, a normal point system. And I know we talked about cheating a little bit. And one of the things I emphasized was I really didn't like that zero tolerance policy where it was, you know, one strike and you're out of there. It's over just that quickly, zero on the test, possible referral or something like that. And we kind of did, we did come to an agreement and we toned it down and we worked towards restorative action. But I know I would like to see a little bit more moving in that direction. And I think we'll get there. It's just a matter of time, definitely. But the good news that I can say is being on this board, I feel like I'm heard enough to where we're always moving forward to some extent. And progress is progress. And I'm happy to see that. So yeah, we do want to talk about that big policy change. Yeah. Obviously, that's the big news. Uh, but first, we want to get to let get to know you a little bit better. So you go to University City High School. How would you describe your school year so far? Uh, especially amid a very uh, challenging pandemic. Crazy. Uh, really, really crazy to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I find that 
right now during this school year. I mean, it, it's hard. It's hard to learn in this environment, and there's no doubt about it. Being stuck in my room, having to find a way to simulate what I would be doing in the classroom, it's not sufficient. And we all we all know that. I know that my teachers are really doing their best, and everyone's just trying to get by. But you know, we're all waiting for when we can go back, obviously, and that is the optimal scenario. I know that across the district, my experience is even more fortunate than a lot of kids who just really have trouble making that environment to do well in school. But I'm optimistic about us moving forward, but I definitely want to see some. I, I would definitely like to see us go back sooner rather than later. And I know they're doing their best and it's difficult, but we'll get there. Okay, I want to follow up on a question I have about Gen Z because I'm wondering, like, are there any positives to virtual schooling? Because if anyone is equipped to do this and to transition to this, I think it's Gen Z. But also, I can understand you're missing the social aspect of things. On the other hand, maybe this is the new normal. Maybe there will be a more virtual aspect to school. We've, I've seen a bunch of think pieces going over and over this issue. So have there been any positives? And could you see, um, you know, I, I mean, you guys organize for advocacy and for protest, and you spend your whole world on the internet. So what's the difference, I guess? I mean, I'll give you that. We just texted each other when we were in person anyway. It's not like it would <laughs> Exactly. You'd be 100 <laughs> feet from the person. You'd be like, hey, how are you doing? I'll be a text right. or something or a exactly. Snapchat. Yeah, so no, you're totally right. Uh, there, The big difference is school is always a constant. And with that taken away, it's really, really hard to have no social aspect or very few like some of my only social interaction will be when I go running with my friends in uh since I can't run cross country with my team I just have to run with friends that might be my only interaction and it's just a few people besides my family so it, it, it gets pretty iso it gets pretty isolating and the I don't know I I didn't know it would be an issue at first I thought hey I'll be fine but it definitely is much tougher than I thought it would be Going to the positives, though, I think the big one is this virtual learning platform does allow you the extra time to do anything you want to, and that is pretty awesome. We passed a policy last week that is actually with the grading policy that allows a student to take any advanced placement class or AP course uh, that's offered at any school via our virtual online school IHI. And now that we're all virtual, you can do that. That's actually something that's possible. And that's pretty awesome to be able to do something like that. So, I mean, pursuing your passions, um, getting more time to do what you love. And that's pretty cool. I would say the isolation factor is a little bit harder, but no, you're right. It's a, it's a different type of learning. And the big thing that I would, I would add is just as you said, it's much easier for us Gen Zers to pull it off than it is some of our teachers. They're doing their best, but it is difficult. Do you worry about um, how this year might affect your academic career going forward at all? Me personally, I'm not too worried. And that's just because of the fact that a lot of my courses are not cumulative. So what that means is that the course I'm going to take next year oftentimes doesn't rely on how well I understand the content of this year. And with the exception of, I think, English and Spanish, really, that's it. So... I'm not as worried, but if from a, from a standpoint of being the student board member, I'm extraordinarily worried. 
I think that the students across our school district are not getting an adequate education and we are doing everything in our power to make that possible. But some barriers are almost are close to insurmountable and recognizing that I do think we're going to have a gap in education. And I know if I were to think about my biggest concerns, it would probably be uh, English language learners. And I would say that because I just spoke to a school counselor a few days ago and she's like, I had a kid that called me and said, I'm losing my English. And I mean, that's just so sad and so awful to think about that a student would be losing their English because they're not having that same interaction. And while our move to in-person virtual learning in the sense that you're sitting in front of your camera and it's what we call synchronous where you're working with your teacher, that is definitely a step up and really does help, but it's not the same interaction. And I mean, everything from you being distracted by what's going on outside the window to, I mean, all of the other distractions to your family running around to you not being able to find a quiet place to work. All of that is gonna have a real impact. And I mean, I can, you're right, I can sugarcoat it all I want and say, we're gonna do great. This is gonna be the best thing ever, but it is really tough. And I think that we're gonna have to do some major recovery when we go back in person to make sure that students are able to move forward. And I think the thing that hurts me the most about it is knowing that it's gonna disproportionately affect our lower income and minority communities. And just being, just by virtue of how socioeconomic status works and some of the resources, our students that are most hurt are the ones that are most vulnerable. And that's pretty scary. And I'm worried our achievement gap is gonna uh, go, uh, we're not gonna be closing our achievement gap and we're gonna be widening it. And that makes me nervous for the future, but in my optimistic sense, I really do believe that our school district's gonna do everything we can to catch those students up. I feel like that's pretty major. You're saying things like we're not getting an, an adequate education and this isn't working and we need to get back. What are some, do you have any examples among your friends or maybe other students you've talked to of like major issues that people are going through? Yeah, so just the isolation aspect, which is a really big one, talking about when students don't have that personal interaction, it really removes an aspect from their lives. And in adolescents who are developing, just like myself, personal interaction is very critical to being able to move forward, to being able to develop those important social skills. And removing that is a really, really hard thing to do. And I mean, just think about it. Our conversation right now, I'm, I'm speaking to a screen. I'm speaking to a computer. I'm not speaking to you directly. And that's a big difference. And in the end, once school ends, you might not be talking to your friends as much. And maybe you are, but think about if you just transferred to a new school. I mean, you might not know anyone. I can tell you, I don't, I don't know if I've really made a new friend at my school via Zoom yet, just because that's, it's not how it works. Meeting friends is an in-person thing. And that communication that happens on the screen usually happens in person first. And this aspect is really, really, going to be difficult. I want to emphasize that once again, although it's not adequate, I do support what we're doing right now just because it is not quite safe to go back yet. And I do think that is still the number one priority. But with that said, being honest, it really is hard and that and not being adequate is difficult for every student. 
Yeah, speaking of catching up, you know, vulnerable students who might be being especially hurt at this time, what is the district talking about? Or do you have, per, you know, ideas personally about how to catch them up? Yeah, definitely. So I think we're going to need to be offering potentially maybe different courses and how we do that to emphasize students being able to catch up. And it might also be a teacher needing to be a little bit more flexible to teach more material throughout the school year because everyone might come back at a different pace. And that's gonna be really, really difficult to gauge where that's gonna be. But it's probably gonna look, you're probably gonna see students that need to be more, or teachers that need to be more flexible when working with their students. And you also might need to look at some recovery time, whether that means uh, potential extra sessions of learning at different times or really specialized education. One of the things that I always emphasize as student board members education isn't one size fits all. And when recovering from coronavirus, education isn't one size fits all. We're going to have to find a way to create a plan that works for every student and gets them caught up. I know that's not a lot of specifics. I know I'm just coming with problems and not as much solutions yet, but that's definitely something that we're going to need to put some effort in. So let's get to the big news of the new grading policy. I know there's a lot there. I highly encourage our listeners to check out Kristen Takeda's story. She's our great education reporter uh, in the San Diego Union Tribune. But can you sum it up in a nutshell? Like, what do people need to know about it? Yeah, definitely. So uh, in three sentences, like a few sentences, <laughs> yeah. I don't drone on. Uh, we're going from a, from, from a traditional point system that includes a bunch of different skills like did you turn your work in on time uh what are your interact what are your interactions in class talking about participation stuff like that and we are moving to a complete focus on are you understanding the content and are you applying the content to be successful yeah uh, that's my one sentence do you want me to explain it a little bit more though yeah that's fine yeah definitely so what that comes out when you actually see it in practice is we're shifting all of those, as we call them, non-academic factors to the citizenship grade. So that's, did you turn in your work roughly on time? And that would kind of move more to the non-academic grade. And then we're moving the assignment and how well you did on the assignment, how well you did on the assessment, how well you're understanding the information to that mastery-based section. And why this is so important is because school is supposed to be focused on the content, not the grade. The whole point of an A is, incentive to do the work and to be successful, putting accountability on yourself. That's why we grade kids. And what we're trying to emphasize is we want to focus on our students understanding the content and being able to apply it in the future. Now, you're probably going to get a lot of students that have listened to this so far and have said, wait, you mean that everything else is going? And my caution to you would be, we're okay. And we're okay because you're gonna have opportunities now to retake tests more, to submit late work again, or not, yeah, to submit work again if you didn't do well the first or second time. And the idea is if you don't understand unit one of your math section, we're gonna make sure you understand unit one as we're moving on to unit two, rather than you fail your unit one tests and you move on to unit two and what a shocker, it's more difficult because you didn't understand the foundational material. So it's a really big, shift and I, th I kind of find it funny national news has really gotten in on it and decided to give their commentary as well we've been getting a lot of like strong you're doing this it's our it's more racist policies it's awful uh i definitely don't think that and this policy is just 
really focusing on what education is supposed to be about. Can you apply the content and do you understand it? Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of mixed opinions out there. Are you hearing any other criticisms or, uh, you know, support? Yeah, definitely. So I actually got a text from my best friend yesterday and he's like, what the heck is going on? Why are we changing this? So, I mean, I knew what I, <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, there's some bad misinformation out there. So I think the big misconception is that uh, it's just like a very fluid situation and you can turn in your work whenever you want. You can do whatever you want. Uh, we're removing all barriers. We're inflating grades so everyone can get an A and there's no accountability. That is the exact opposite of what we're doing. There will still be measures. The idea is, I mean, if you turn in your work a day late or two days late because you had something going on, that's fine. If you turn in your work six weeks late because you just didn't want to do it, well, that's probably not going to cut it. And that's still going to be reflected in it. The negative feedback I got was, once again, it removes accountability. And it says a student can do whatever they want, and that doesn't prepare our students for the workforce. My response to that would be, our focus is on you understanding the content. And in the end, that is the most important part. And we're not removing it now because your citizenship grade is going to be, a big part of your citizenship grade is going to be that non-academic factor of did you turn in your work in on time. And while a lot of colleges don't review citizenship grades right now, if you don't turn in a ton of work on time, your citizenship grade is gonna go down pretty heavily. And in the end, if you have an A, and a U, which is your lowest grade and unsatisfactory, that's not going to look good to college. So there's still some pretty clear things going on. And I think the shift is totally being exaggerated. I guess I have one follow-up question on it. Um, Kristen explained it pretty well in her news story. But how do the teachers do that? Like, say you don't make it through unit one with very much understanding, but there are kids in the class who are ready to fly on to the next thing. How can one teacher facilitate all of that? Yeah, so how I imagine it's going to work is it's going to be an emphasis on working with the student outside of those normal instructional hours and then giving them the opportunity to make up work and to catch up in other maybe asynchronous ways or as I said, outside of school, maybe some flex time or something like that. And yeah, you're right. You can't just wait till every student gets an A in unit one because by the time you do that, you might be done with school. So you're going, you're going to have to move forward, and I totally get that. But no, you are right. It is going to be a challenge for our teachers. I know my history teacher, after he actually read the UT article that you're talking about, he asked me about it in class and asked me to elaborate a little bit more. And that was an interesting conversation we had where he's like, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I have no idea how to implement this. And I'm going, <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? It was like, it's the middle of Zoom, it's the middle of Zoom class. And I'm like, yeah. call me out in the middle of class. Uh, which was funny, but I was happy to answer him. And I was just like, yeah, you're right. It is, it is going to be an, adaption, an adaptation. And the big thing we'll emphasize is there's going to be a lot of development with working with our teachers to implement this and showing how it's going to work. And I think change is always hard at the beginning. Everyone pushes back to initial change, but give it some time and I'm sure it'll work. If I'm correct, it was piloted at some of our schools before. So there is evidence of success, and this isn't just some blind thing that they're going into that we're hoping is going to work. We're doing this with the idea that we know it could, it could very well be successful. And obviously, in the case that it's not, we'll reevaluate. It's not the end of the world. 
That's so amazing that uh, your teacher is turning for, to you for dis, you know information about the district. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's actually it's, it's really funny in the role. And since I am the first, uh, since I am the first one, it's not like any teacher from my school uh, from from my school has ever had a student right. board member. So, or I always think the funny thing when I'm on like an orientation call or something, and my principal's like, the big question is when we'll get back to school. And my response to you is, I don't know. It's when the Board of Education decides. And I always laugh a little bit. It's like, that's, <laughs> no, that's me. Um, well, yeah, one more me. policy question for you uh, before we wrap this up and let you go. But, you know, on the ballot this time around, there is a question about, um, you know, district only elections for the school board. What is your stance there or what, what, what would you like to say about that? Yeah, definitely. I'm actually a little bit divided on that, to be honest. So... I think that I, I read both standpoints from our other Board of Education trustees and in kind of formulating my opinion on it, here's where I'm, here's where I'm, uh, here's where I'm at a cross kind of. So the, the idea of the way our school districts are split up, as I said, this geographic subdistrict, that is what would become the new boundary if we vote to approve those new changes. And what that means is you have three north of the eight and two south of the eight which means you have the potential in the future for the split to be north versus, versus south, and north would always win, which happens to be a lot of our upper income schools. So potentially that could actually hurt our school board from making decisions that are in the best interest of all students, rather than a district-wide election where everyone is accountable to all of our members. I do validate the point that they talk about where they say, well, 60% of our board is white right now. That is true. Obviously, three out of five members are white. But with, with that said, I think that a lot of them are also representatives that do vote in the interest of the people in their geographic subdistrict. And I think that in addition to voting in their geographic subdistrict, in order to win, you have to consider everyone. And that's the beauty of why we function so well together. So I would lean a little bit more towards not voting for it and going for and keeping our district-wide situation but once again on the counter i do understand the argument that you might get more minorities and people of color onto the board of education in these district only elections because they're just smaller groups of people voting for that candidate so you can see it it actually is a more complicated argument i predict that it will go to geographic subdistricts just based off of what it's looking like right now but i would probably be inclined to vote against it Okay, I know I said that was the last policy question, but there is another one on the ballot about some 17-year-olds being able to vote. And so you, you know, being also a young person surrounded by your peers, you know, there are different schools of thought on this. Do you feel like 17-year-olds are mature enough to vote or generally um, informed enough to vote? That's a great can of worms to open. Love talking about it. <laughs> I love talking about this. This is a good one. So I actually think this is a lame excuse of what should have happened from the previous year. So there was a constitutional amendment brought forth uh, two years ago to lower the voting age to 17 period. I think it should be lowered to 16, like is being on the, like it's on the ballot in San Francisco right now. And my argument for that is the idea of building, uh, is the idea of where a 16 year old is. So a 16 year old is either in a civics class or a US history course. They're engaged in their high school community this is a consistent, this is a consistency across the board 
for almost all 16 year olds. And what that means is if you get them now, they're developing a habit of civic engagement and a habit of voting. And if you vote the first time, you are significantly more likely to continue that habit of voting. And on the argument of competency specifically, I think the difference from a 16 year old versus an 18 year old is very, very minimal. And you having that knowledge to understand what's going on from the perspectives given by your US history course and by your civics course are gonna help you make informed decisions. Us as Gen Z are more informed, more educated, and more understanding of what's going on in the world than really ever before. And that's the beautiful thing about this global connection that we have. And while some could argue, well, you're just gonna vote the way your parents do, I would argue that students are making independent and informed decisions. And we have the resources to be successful. And in the end, if a student is uninformed, they probably won't vote. And that would minimize that issue. So for those of us that are engaged, that want to be active participants in our democracy, we need to recognize that if we want to retain an educate, if we want to retain a population that cares about the future of our country, we need to invest in the future of our country. And that starts with lowering our voting age to 16. And for this more weak amendment to move to <laughs> 17, I mean, that's just a basic one. It's primary elections for when you're 18. If you're going to say, I can vote in three weeks, if, the, if, you're cut, if you're part of that cutoff to where it applies to you, it could be a three-week difference. I mean, this one, if you, don't, if you don't agree with my view and you think it's a little too extremist, I mean, this is like three steps back. This is like a six-month period if you get to vote for the, if you get to vote in the presidential election, you can vote in the primary. Very simple stuff. Well, I look forward to seeing yeah. that on the ballot when you're one of our representatives. Oh. <laughs> Hey, yeah, wow. Big endorsement for Prop 18 out there. Anybody who's still deciding, there Big you go. Big endorsement, yeah. What other, can I bring up one other policy? We head <laughs> off? Yes, yeah. yes. So one of the other things that I advocate for, I'm the president of the California Student Board Member Association. And what that is, is a group of student board members from across the state of California that work together to better and more accurately represent the students within their education systems. As I've talked to you about, there are a lot of barriers to me being successful as a student board member. And what we've seen for school districts that have had student board members for longer is the biggest accomplishment of a student board member is oftentimes I won the position. Great. That's not, we're not seeing any substantial changes though. And that's because a lot of our school districts are not willing to equip their students with the resources to be successful. So we founded this student board member association to emphasize that student board members like me or like the one in Poway Unified or our one in Sweetwater Union High School District are all competent and able to effectively be representatives if they're given the resources to be successful in the connections. And one of the things we'll definitely be advocating for is that discussion of adding a seat to the Board of Education with a full vote for student board members. And my argument would be, I am the only member of the Board of Education that is directly affected by the decisions that students, by the decisions that are made. When that grading policy goes in, I'm gonna be the one that's affected by it. John Lee Evans won't, Richard Barrera won't, Sharon Whitehurst-Payne won't, I'll be the one that's affected by it. And if we want to create an education system that is best serving students, we need to include a student with a full voice. It's already been done in two different cities in Maryland, and we are already seeing active student representation at very, very young ages. 
if our climate movement has shown us anything, if Parkland has shown us anything, and if the movement of our generation has shown us anything, it's that we're competent, we're educated, and we're ready to make a splash and to make a difference. And I think that student board members having a full vote is a solid way to move the needle on our education system to one that accurately represents students. My elevator pitch. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Um, yeah, I feel like we could have a whole episode on what education looks like with Gen Z in charge. Like we had an episode on our Hello Gen Z podcast about this. Uh, we talked about ethnic studies. Uh, I'm very interested in the sort of technological yeah. crossover, uh, but we've talked a while now, so w we won't make you do that. Awesome. But I, my last my last question for you is, you you're, you seem to know a lot about policy and you're very engaged in these issues, but what do you like to do outside of politics? And like, what do you, obviously it seems like you're gunning to do this in the future, um, you know, politically engaged. <laughs> yeah, you I told me you want to be a, a political science major, but like... <laughs> Tell us more about you, yourself, outside of all this stuff. Yeah, so outside of the robot mold that I have uh, of being <laughs> laser focused, I am a human being, luckily. So uh, yeah, I, uh, I love to surf. Uh, as you said, I run cross country pretty frequently. Uh, I love hanging out with my friends in, a, in a, a safe manner. I'm Jewish, I'm pretty active in my education. I'm pretty active in my Jewish education. I got to spend a little bit of high school last year in Israel and that was a pretty amazing experience. Or I got wow. to better understand, I studied the Israel-Palestine conflict and talking about different paths to peace, a totally interesting nice. side tangent. But I've definitely had a lot of experiences. Uh, I love to travel. I've taken, I think, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've taken five years in Spanish. Yo puedo hablar un poco español. So I can speak a little bit. I really enjoy that. And let's do what else. I love history, if you couldn't have... <laughs> You couldn't have seen that one coming. So I definitely have some interests outside of politics that I really like. And out, so yeah, outside of school, I mean, I really think it's important to, especially right now, staying engaged and having friends to go to and having people to lean on because in these difficult and contentious times where every time you turn on the news, you're crying about something else, it's always good to have a support system. So I'm, I'm lucky to have that. Well, our final question for you, because we're called Name Drop, we like to ask our guests to name drop or shout out someone in the community that has, um, you know, helped them or just they think you think deserves recognition for any any reason. So in, in our community, who would that be for you? Ooh, somebody who's made um, a big, let me say, somebody who's made a big difference for me. Probably uh, my rabbi, Rabbi Devorah Marcus of Temple, uh, of Temple Emmanuel uh, of San Diego. I would say she's had a pretty big impact on helping me form my own political views. And she's such a strong activist for her beliefs. She's really helped me get a better understanding and really ask, ask myself to question my own biases and recognize how I can be more intersectional and how I can be a more understanding person. Because while I might not understand something initially, that's okay, as long as I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to grow. And I think she's really helped me become a better individual. And I'm really proud to have such a strong and active and engaged rabbi who ties the ideas of Judaism for me into the ideas of social justice. And I think that's formed a big part of who I am. And it's a big part of why I serve on the Board of Education today. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks to everyone who tuned in for this episode. We have new ones each Tuesday, so please subscribe and let a friend know. Also, if you're still deciding who and what to vote for, we can help. Go to sandiegouniontribune.com slash voting guide to see news coverage, interviews with candidates, endorsements, and more. And make sure to vote. Thanks for listening. Bye.